The opinions expressed on the ACB Media Network are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. All right, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to Avia's uh, second afternoon presentation. Um, Charles Navarrete is going to introduce our speaker, um, who is appearing by Zoom. Hello. Um, welcome to the uh, 30th edition of our conference. Um, I'd like to thank you all for attending. And I'm going to introduce Mary Kaler, who is the Vice President of Equip for Equality, a uh, program located in, in Chicago. Um, he's enlisted uh, as being in charge of civil rights litigation as well as other uh, endeavors. Barry was recommended to me as a speaker by um, Chris Bell, who said he was an excellent, he made an excellent presentation. And he has graced. Uh, Barry has graciously taken time out of this holiday weekend to um, be with us. So, thank you, Barry. Please make your please uh, thank me. <laughs> please feel welcomed. Thanks, Charles, and hi, everybody. It's great to be with you today. Um, so, uh, what I'm going to be doing today is talking to you about. Uh, our organization and the systemic advocacy that we've done over the years um, on behalf of the blind community. Um, I've been with Equip for Quality for 27 years, and so a lot of time has gone by, and we've been able to come up with a lot of different strategies and initiatives, and um, hopefully by sharing some of the work that we've done, it might be helpful in uh, some of the advocacy and the work that uh, you guys are doing across the country. So I'll first start with just giving you some background organization information. So Equip for Equality is what's called the Protection and Advocacy Agency for the state of Illinois. For those of you who aren't familiar with the Protection and Advocacy, or PNA um, network, back in the 70s, Congress felt that traditional legal aid wasn't necessarily doing a good enough job serving people with disabilities. And they said, we want to have a legal advocate in every state to serve people with disabilities on legal issues that are related to their disability. So for instance, we wouldn't handle a case involving a divorce that a person with disability happens to have because the disability isn't the relevant issue, but we would handle legal issues that are related to the disability. A lot of our organizations are called disability rights and then the state name, like Disability Rights California or Disability Rights Michigan. Uh, Equip for Quality, for whatever reason, has not uh, ad adopted that um, terminology. We've kept our, our name as Equip for Equality, but we are part of this uh, national network. And so we have a national organization that has a website that has all the different protection advocacy agencies on that website. So if you're not familiar with your protection advocacy agency in your state and you want to contact them, I would recommend that you go to our national organization's website. And uh, the organization is called the National Disability Rights Network. And their email address is N, as in Nancy, D, as in dog, R, N, again, as in Nancy, dot O-R-G, N-D-R-N dot O-R-G. And under the About 
part of the website, there'll be a, a link for all the different protection advocacy agencies across the, the country. And you can then click on their uh, contact information that way. Um, and so our mission is to advance the human and civil rights of people with disabilities. We have about 35 attorneys on staff. We're a statewide organization, about 60 total staff members. Um, and we're cross-disability, meaning we serve people with sensory disabilities, like folks who are blind, as well as people with physical disabilities, uh, people with mental illness, people with developmental disabilities, intellectual disabilities. So we're cross-disability. We're also cross-age, serving uh, kids all the way up to seniors. Um, our services are free. And we also balance our work between doing a lot of individual advocacy as well as some systems change advocacy. And I'll talk about both of that, both of those as well today. Um, and also we do some public policy advocacy with non-federal funds, lobbying and trying to either promote legislation and policies that will help people with disabilities as well as oppose the, the bad stuff that's being proposed by people who are seeking to limit the rights of people with disabilities. Um, we're divided up into three different teams. I oversee our civil rights team, as Charles talked about. We also have a special education clinic, and we also have an abuse investigation unit that looks into abuse, neglect of people with disabilities. Within the civil rights team, we focus a lot on uh, traditional discrimination, enforcing the ADA uh, for employment discrimination, uh, access to businesses, access to government services, transportation, um, housing, also do work around um, community integration, making sure people with disabilities are served in the most integrated setting, and then also self-determination, uh, making sure people with disabilities get to make the choices they want and uh, prevent other people from doing so, like through guardianship. Um, I do have a PowerPoint that has a lot of this information, including uh, contact information for the agency. And in talking to Dave Adams before the session, he indicated that my PowerPoint would be sent to participants, so you'll have access to all this information uh, at the end. All right, well, let's talk about, I'm going to give you a little bit of a roadmap of the different topics I'm going to talk about. What I, the, I thought the easiest way to talk about this work and our advocacy over the years with the blind community would divide it up by subject matter. So I'm going to talk about transportation, health care, banking, voting, higher education, public accommodations, government services, housing, and employment, and give you examples of advocacy that we've done in all those areas over the years. And then um, we can open up for questions at the end. And if there's anything that I'm saying um, during the presentation that you'd like to either clear up or clarify or you want to ask a question on the spot, that's fine with me. I'll, Dave's going to uh, facilitate questions, so I'll leave it to him as to uh, how to um, to integrate questions that people might have now, or we'll just do that at the end. All right, so let's start with transportation. And uh, when I first came to Equip for Equality back in the mid-90s, um, we had a lot of individual concerns about transportation, particularly the Chicago Transit Authority, which is the mainline transit authority here in Chicago. And um, what people said was, you know, we're glad you're taking these individual cases, but you'll help one person and then the same problem is going to come up again. And we were getting complaints from people with physical disabilities, mobility impairments, also people who were deaf, and also people who were blind or had low vision. And so we were seeing that this was not just a sort of a random issue, but was, was coming up a lot. And for people who are blind, uh, one of the main 
complaints that we got was that the the bus drivers and the train conductors were not calling out the stops. And I'm sure all of you know that under the Americans with Disabilities Act, that's actually a requirement uh, for the transit drivers to call out the stops so the blind folks know um, when the next stop is or they know which uh, to get on the right bus or the right train. Um, and what was happening in Chicago is either the, the drivers were not calling out the stops at all or they were calling out the stops but the microphone equipment was faulty. And so they'd say something, but because the microphone wasn't working, you would either wouldn't hear it or it'd be garbled. And so it was it was really hard for people to navigate the buses and trains independently because of this lack of announcements or the poor announcements that were happening. Um, there were other issues that people raised as well um, about signage and some other issues of effective communication um, and navigation. But for the blind community, that seemed to be a really important issue. Uh, and a real failure of the Chicago Transit Authority. Uh, as I said, we were getting a lot of complaints from other folks too, wheelchair users and uh, deaf people. And so ultimately we decided to bring um, a lawsuit against the Chicago Transit Authority um, on behalf of people with uh, all three of those disabilities, mobility impairments, deafness, and blindness. And we did it um, with the train system and the bus system, which was unusual at the time I don't think anybody had filed such a comprehensive lawsuit before, but in Chicago, uh, the train and bus system is very integrated in that a lot of times people will take a bus and a train to get to their destination. So we didn't want to just do one or the other, and we also didn't want to um, do just a particular disability. We wanted to do it broadly for all the different disabilities that had been complaining about the CTA. So we brought this lawsuit, um, and we filed it with uh, another organization called Access Living, which is the Center for Independent Living in Chicago, and then also some private attorneys who worked on it. And our case was about those parts of the CTA that the state, or excuse me, the city was saying was accessible, but in fact was not accessible. So the fact that they weren't calling out stops, the fact that the bus lifts were broken, the fact that the elevators to the train platforms were broken, those kinds of things that they said were accessible, but when people tried to access it, they actually weren't accessible. Um, and the reason we did this was there had been previous litigation brought against the CTA about making certain parts of the system accessible, and so we were basically a follow-up lawsuit to that lawsuit that had been filed uh, a number of years before. And we had nine plaintiffs, um, some who had mobility impairments, some who were deaf and some who were blind. So we had a wide range. And then Access Living was not only our uh, co-counsel, but they also served as an organizational plaintiff. And so we filed this lawsuit, and uh, as you can imagine, the CTA was not happy about it, and they filed all kinds of motions to get it dismissed. Uh, and there were two different motions that they filed, and both of them were denied, and we were getting ready for trial, and finally they said, okay, we'll settle the case. And so we reached a comprehensive settlement that really tried to address all the different issues that we were focusing on. And uh, for folks who are blind, the most important thing that the CTA agreed to do was to, uh, to adopt uh, and integrate technology that would have automated announcements on the buses and the trains. Um, and this sounds like, you know, uh, a very routine kind of thing. But remember, this was the late 90s, early 2000s, right when GPS was sort of coming into its own. And so this was really a major um, change. Uh, 
and a, a huge investment by the CTA. I think it was about $12 million to put in this automated system. And it was just, you know, so important, to, we thought, to go ahead and do this because they were the CTA just was not able to make its drivers uh, announce the stops on a very uh, regular basis, and trying to enforce that was very difficult. So by putting in this automated announcement system, it really took away some of that personal oversight that they were having such a hard time with and really incorporated this um, automatically for folks. And on the, the buses and trains, they, uh, they integrated both a visual and an audio automatic system based on GPS that announced the name of the bus or the name of the train as well as the upcoming train stations or bus stations or bus stops. Um, there are, of course, a lot of other features um, that probably aren't as relevant to um, the blind community, but obviously since we had a lot of other folks um, that we were representing, we, we were uh, getting solutions for them as well. But then there were other things like the independent monitor, um, people who were going to ride the system and, and observe whether they were complying with the decree or not. Um, uh, there was also an operational improvement fund, which they agreed to every five years of the settlement, invest an additional $100,000 to improve issues. And one of those improvements was um, better speakers on the train platforms, which obviously helped blind people. So this was really uh, a tremendous uh, victory and uh, was exciting to, to work collaboratively with the disability community, including the blind community. And in fact, by working with the blind community in this uh, case, uh, folks said, you know, we need to have a better relationship. And so what they requested was we need to have meetings with you on a regular basis to hear what, about what you're doing and also tell you what we think you need to be doing for blind people. So as a result of that collaboration, we integrated or implemented um, semi-annual meetings with the blind community that we are still doing today, 23 years later, um, which are really great. And um, it was this CTA case that really launched that um, that more uh, routine uh relationship and meeting with the blind community. So again, as you're thinking about ways to work with your protection advocacy in your state, you might consider uh, reaching out to them about doing um, regular meetings to get input because one of the things protection advocacies agencies are supposed to do is get input from the disability community every year and setting our priorities. So this is a way for us to meet routinely with the blind community. Obviously they can come to the general meetings as well, but it's great to meet with them on this issue. All right, I'm going to turn next to my next topic, and that's healthcare. And before I get into the work we've done in healthcare, um, we used a, uh, a we used a strategy called structure negotiation, and we did it in healthcare and other things I'm going to talk about today. But I thought maybe I'd mention what structure negotiation is in case you're not familiar with that term. So structure negotiation is a uh, is a theory that was the, developed by a couple of lawyers out in California, Laney Feingold and Linda Dardarian, and Laney's worked really closely with the blind community and American Council for the Blind, so you're probably, some of you may know about her or know about structure negotiation, but for those of you who don't, it's basically a way to negotiate a solution, a systemic solution, without a lawsuit, but instead of sort of just being, you know, back and forth letters and things like that, which sometimes work and sometimes don't, it's more structured, as the name implies and you basically reach an agreement on how you're going to negotiate. And there's time frames and rules and um, decisions about um, uh, recovery financially for both the 
the uh, the individuals who've been harmed, as well as the attorney's fees. And it's just a, it's a much more structured type of process that really keeps sort of the feet to the fire and keeps all the parties honest so that it actually gets done. Um, and it's it's an alternative to litigation. Oftentimes, parties are, are excited not to litigate because litigation can sometimes embarrass companies. And this, this is sort of a win-win solution in that you don't file a lawsuit, but you get systemic change. And if you're not familiar with Lainey's work in this area, her website's really great and has a lot of information of the different issues that she's tackled over the years. It's LF, as in Frank, legal.com, LFlegal.com. And she has dealt with a lot of issues that we actually haven't dealt with through structure negotiation, including like talking prescription bottles and um, the point of sale accessibility when you're checking out from a retail, retail store and that screen's not accessible. She's done a lot of work in a variety of areas involving technology in the blind community. But I said all that because we use structure negotiation in some healthcare cases. And what we were finding is that a lot of folks with disabilities were having difficulties, particularly at hospitals, um, getting accessible care. And it was, again, a range of disabilities that were complaining to us about these issues, including the blind community. And so we thought, well, let's use this structure negotiation um, tool to try to negotiate systemic solutions. And we've done it twice in Illinois, one in Chicago with the Northwestern hospital system, and then also down in central Illinois through the Carl um, hospital system. And in both of those cases, we had complainants that had physical disabilities, deafness, or blindness. And they all had had problems accessing these hospital systems, and so they agreed to be our complainants for the structure negotiation. And we reached out to both of these systems and said, look, we've got some major issues here about access to your healthcare system, and we'd like to work collaboratively with you through the structure negotiation process. Unfortunately, they both of these different hospital systems agreed to work with us. And as a result, we reached some systemic change. One of the reasons why I think this was such an effective strategy is that part of the structure negotiation process is to actually meet with the complainants and talk about the problems and brainstorm about solutions. And in litigation, it's so adversarial, you don't really talk to each other. You know, there are depositions where you have to give testimony, but it's all very formal and it's all very sort of careful and protective. And there's not really an opportunity to just talk to people about what the problems are and come up with some solutions. But structure negotiations allows that. And I remember when our our complainants met with these hospital systems, what a difference it made because these were their these were their clients, their patients. And hearing that their patients were having such a hard time accessing their hospital I think was really sobering for them. And they're like, wow, we never knew or we didn't understand or we really want to make a change. And it really resulted in some great systemic change. And some of the, the changes that help folks who are blind include uh, addressing website accessibility, um, implementing a reasonable accommodation policy at intake. So somebody called, they could say, oh, do you need any kind of reasonable accommodations when you visit our hospital? Um, having questions about accessible formats at the intake process. So if you call and you you, they say, well, you need your information in an alternative format. Yes, I need it in large print. Or yes, I need it you know, in text format, not in PDF format, those kinds of things. Um, addressing accessible signage issues, um, providing navigation assistance for people who need help navigating the hospital, and then uh, making sure they both had um, effective service animal policies because that had been a complaint as well. 
So those two um, stretch negotiations really resulted in systemic change for a variety of disability issues, including for the blind community. In addition to those two big cases we did in healthcare, structural negotiations we did in healthcare, we've of course handled many numerous individual cases over the years for blind people uh, who are trying to access healthcare. And typically those cases have involved um, getting healthcare information in alternate formats, um, effective communication issues, and service animal issues. And that can be not just hospitals, but doctor's offices, dentist offices, eyeglasses, um, eye, eye care offices, those kinds of things. All right, I'm going to move to the next topic, which is banking. Uh, this is another uh, area where we have used structured negotiations really um, effectively. And again, I'm going to be dating myself because these were some issues that came up in the late 90s, early 2000s. Um, just as sort of a lot of the talking ATM technology was evolving. Um, but at the time, uh, folks in the blind community were unable to do their banking privately and independently um, at certain banks because they hadn't adopted the talking ATM um, technology. There were also concerns about accessible bank websites, and also some banks were charging uh, people who are blind for receiving information in alternate formats and, and for raised checks and that sort of thing. And so uh, Laney Feingold had done a lot of structure negotiations on these issues, and then, but we identified two banking systems that had um, uh, a Chicago base uh, that were still problematic. Um, and so we approached both of these banking systems for structure negotiations. And in this case, we worked a lot with the Illinois Council of the Blind, which is the Illinois chapter of ACB, and uh, the two different banking systems uh, were LaSalle Bank and TCF Bank. And as a result of these cases, um, both of them, uh, again, structured negotiations, uh, both of them agreed to install talking ATMs, address the website accessibility, and also provide information in alternate format formats, including raised checks, but providing that at no cost instead of charging people like they were before. And our clients were, again, very helpful because, again, it wasn't adversarial. Uh, it was a collaborative process. So our clients were able to really explain how they were having a hard time accessing banking services and what changes need to be made. In fact, our, our clients actually helped with the, the message on the talking ATMs that were put together and also reviewed the website. So, again, it was really, really collaborative. Um, LaSalle Bank had, at the time, They've now become part of uh, another banking system. But at the time, they had 140 locations, and they were located in numerous states, not just in Illinois. So it was much broader than just in Illinois. And TCF were really big. They had 445 locations in seven different states. So by reaching that agreement, we not only helped folks in Illinois, but uh, folks around the country who were uh, having barriers accessing these two banking systems. And LaSalle had embraced this so much and were so wonderful to work with, we actually gave them an advocacy award uh, for the way they embraced things. And they actually did more than what we asked. They started working on employment issues for people with disabilities and people who are blind and really became a leader in disability advocacy or disability um, treatment of people with disabilities, both their customers and employees. Uh, and that all came about because the structure negotiation process was a way to really get them to understand and adopt some great practices. So um, you, you wouldn't necessarily give an award to somebody you sue, but structure negotiation, again, because it doesn't become as adversarial, 
will allow for that type of um, positive result and collaboration. All right, I'm going to move to the next topic, which is voting. Um, so uh, voting, I, I, I know all of you probably have had issues with voting access, so um, I don't have to tell you what these challenges can be, but I'll, I'll share with you some of the things that we've encountered in Illinois with the blind community and some of the things that we've done to try to address that. So when I'm talking about voting, we're talking about accessible voting in person as well as accessible vote by mail. And so let me first talk about our accessible voting in person. So back uh, in uh, 2016, I think it was, uh, the Department of Justice did a, a survey of polling places in Chicago, and they found a lot of barriers, both physical barriers as well as uh, barriers for people who are blind who are trying to use the accessible machine. So I think all of you know that as a result of the Help America Vote Act, every polling place is supposed to have an accessible uh, voting machine uh, for people to be blind people to be able to vote privately and independently. But what the Department of Justice survey showed was that a lot of these um, accessible vote by accessible machines were either not working or people weren't, the poll workers were not trained properly to be able to use those systems when a blind person wanted to access it. Um, and so even though the law required this to be available for folks, it wasn't working out in practice either because machines weren't um, maintained and serviced properly or there was improper training and people couldn't help folks with, uh, who were blind to use these machines. And as a result, people are having to get personal assistance to vote. Um, and as you know, by doing that, it takes away the independence and privacy that all of us as Americans rely upon. And so uh, this is a really important issue. Um, and again, like I said, the Department of Justice found a lot of other issues as well, including physical accessibility. So the Department of Justice approached the Chicago Board of Elections, which is the election authority for Chicago, and said, you've got some real problems here. You can either work collaboratively with us or we're going to file a lawsuit. And to their credit, the Chicago Board of Elections said, we want to work collaboratively with you and try to figure out how to way to resolve these situations. But the Board of Elections did not have a lot of expertise on some of these disability issues. And so what they ended up doing was hiring Equip for Equality to work with them to address all the issues that the Department of Justice had identified. So this is a different role for us, right, because we're not, we're not the ones suing or we're not the one approaching them about um, structure negotiations. We're actually um, being hired by them to help them make their services accessible and address the problems that Department of Justice had identified. But it's really been a, a really great uh, collaboration, and it's really been a three-way collaboration between us and the Board of Elections and the Department of Justice. We've been working steadily on this for the last seven years, and a lot of improvements have happened. Uh, it's, not, uh, it's not perfect yet, and the work continues, but uh, we continue to work uh, collaboratively and make improvements. Um, each election day, we, have, we send out uh, our staff to all the election uh, sites in Chicago and survey and find out you know, what's working, what's not, and then report back and, and then have some implementation plans to fix the problems that are happening. Frankly, for blind folks, a lot of this is training uh, uh, poll workers. Um, sometimes there are equipment breakdowns, but a lot of times it's poll workers just not knowing how to help uh, use the equipment. And so um, that continues to be an issue. Uh, the Board of Elections has adopted a program where they have one poll workers 
sort of like a super poll worker who gets paid a little extra and undergoes additional training on a lot of issues related to disability, including um, how to work the electronic voting machine. So, again, we're seeing improvements and continue to work uh, collaboratively on that. And then we've also done a lot of work around accessible vote by mail. Um, for a while, there really was not um, the ability to um, register electronically. There was no, not a way to receive your ballot electronically, to mark it electronically, and certainly not to return it electronically. And so we've been working with uh, blind advocates and other people with disabilities um, in Illinois to try to address this with the Illinois Board of Elections. And we're making progress. Um, we uh, collaboratively worked with them on uh, getting some legislation passed, which would address some of these issues. And um, so far, uh, we've been able to get um, electronic registration, electronic receipt of the ballot, and electronic marking of the ballot. The thing that's still we're working on is the electronic return of the ballot. And I'm sure many of you know that in some states this has been achieved, in other states they have, it is not. Um, and we actually had some legislation that was proposed this last election term that unfortunately didn't pass that would have uh, required electronic return of ballots. Because, of course, electronic return is sort of the ultimate way of independent and privacy of voting. And even if you receive it and mark it, independently and privately, if you still have to print it out and have somebody mail it in for you, that can affect your ability to do this independently and privately. So that work continues. Um, uh, again, we've done this through advocacy, through um, threatened litigation, and through public policy legislative work as well. So um, uh, again, that's uh, an ongoing issue and has been another really terrific opportunity to work collaboratively with the different blind groups here in Illinois. Okay, I'm going to turn to the next topic, which is higher education. So um, the example I wanted to give you is uh, an issue that came to us from uh, a person who worked at the University of Illinois in Chicago. Uh, he was a staff member, and he's blind. And he called us up and said, you know, a lot of the information technology at the University of Illinois in Chicago, or UIC, is not accessible to me. And one of the things that sort of, I guess, really um, upset him was they had adopted um, or developed a new campus safety app. It was to, a safety app for, um, for not only staff, but for students and faculty as well. And uh, it was inaccessible. The app, app was inaccessible to people who are blind. And so he reached out to us to see if we could try to fix this. We said, you know, we think this might be a, a an issue that would be right for structure negotiation, and we might be able to negotiate all these different barriers rather than just focusing on one through litigation. And he was very up for trying to get a systemic solution, uh, somebody we've known for a lot of, a lot of years and have worked with uh, many times on different types of um, trainings and programs. And so he was, he was very much willing to be our complainant for the structure negotiation. And after uh, talking with the University of Illinois in Chicago, they agreed to a structure negotiation, and we got some really great solutions. So the main thing we got was significant improvements to UIC's digital technology, and it included making that campus safety app uh, accessible, but we also, um, there were a lot of human resources um, uh, information that wasn't accessible to blind people, and a lot of COVID information they were putting out that also was not accessible. So 
we just basically looked at all their information technology and worked collaboratively with them and used our client um, and his expertise as a, as a blind person to address this information technology uh, and uh, really got some great solutions. They also agreed to create a new position on digital accessibility um, that was part of their overall tech process, and that person could really be helpful um, as issues came up. They also created a new committee on electronic information technology access, which would address both existing issues as well as procurement issues. So when you procure new technology, making sure that accessibility is part of the discussion there. And then they also created a lot of new uh, electronic information technology policies and mandated staff training on those issues for those who worked on those uh, that kind of technology. So that was a really, again, a very exciting uh, systemic change that I think really made a big difference both for uh, people who work for the University of Illinois Chicago who are blind as well as their blind students. And of course, over the years, we've also done a number of individual cases um, for individuals trying to access um, higher education, including blind folks. And again, a lot of those issues uh, involve getting alternate formats, uh, effective communication and accommodations, and access to service animals. All right, I'm going to move to our next topic, which is um, uh, public accommodations. So if you're not familiar with public accommodation, that term, it's basically just private businesses that are open to the public. So um, I'm just going to talk about some examples of different public accommodations and some of the things we've done. So the first one I'm going to mention is movie theaters. So this was a problem um, that came up about 10 or 15 years ago where um, blind people were and deaf people were saying, we just can't enjoy the movies because they're not accessible. There's not audio description for blind people, and there's not captioning for deaf people um, or um, uh, um, amplified sound for people who are hard of hearing. And so we identified what we thought was a major movie theater chain at the time that was we were getting the most complaints from, and that was AMC Theaters. And so what we did was we gathered a variety of people uh, from the blind community and the deaf community and put together a major um, complaint, and we filed it with the Attorney General's office in Illinois because they had told us they were looking for a systemic solution or systemic issue to address uh, in the disability realm because our Illinois Attorney General's office has what's called a Disability Rights Bureau, and they uh, are specifically focused on disability access issues. And we thought, wow, this sounds like a good solution. Let's file a complaint with the Attorney General's office and they can negotiate or litigate um, a solution to this issue of movie access. And in fact, after the Illinois Attorney General took our complaint and approached AMC and said, look, we want to try to figure this out. Are you willing to work with us or do we have to file suit? And fortunately, they agreed to work it out collaboratively with the Illinois Attorney General. And so for blind people, it resulted in providing audio description for all of AMC's movies at 460 different movie screens. And before we filed this complaint, there would be sort of a random accessible movie at one you know, particular screen at some particular time. It was really hard for people to, to, to know when and where it was, and oftentimes they'd go to the one that was advertised, and it wouldn't be working, the equipment wouldn't work, or they didn't know what they were talking about. It was really a fiasco. But this was much more broad, where AMC said, we're going to put this in so uh, we're going to have accessible movies at all our movie screens. Um, and that would be audio description uh, and providing headsets for blind patrons so that they can um, have good access. So 
a grand, uh, a good systemic solution to a problem that people were having. What sort of? Yeah. I had a question about public accommodations uh, as a result it relates to web accessibility. Yeah, go ahead, Charles. In, in California, we had a case a couple of years ago which held that uh, Domino's Pizza was required to provide uh, an accessible website. However, it did not answer the question as to uh, businesses which do not have a public presence or brick and mortar, mortar uh, right. situation. And so that still is an unresolved question. So although there are a few or one or two circuits in the East Coast that do require that to be that web sites be accessible, even for not uh, uh, businesses which are not, you know, don't have a physical presence. So what is the status of that? Has there been any movement in that? Yeah, this has been a huge issue. I'm glad you raised it, Charles. Um, and as you noted, there's depending on where you live, the law is different. And this is one that you know we really think the Department of Justice needs to issue regulations and be really clear so that we can have a national standard um, because it does vary. And California happens to be a place that does require sort of this nexus between the website and a physical place. Um, and fortunately for for Domino's, they do have physical stores, but there are places, you know, our businesses like, you know, eBay and Amazon and whatever who are, you know, internet only or electronic only businesses and don't have that physical nexus. Um, here in Illinois, we actually have good law. Uh, it was actually an insurance case. Um, and they said, well, you know, people don't necessarily go to a physical insurance office. You don't need to have that nexus. And so we actually have good law in Illinois or the Seventh Circuit, which covers Illinois, Indiana, and Wisconsin. And as you said, there's some, some good dis- decisions out on the East Coast. But a lot of the states around the country do require this physical nexus, which sometimes is, exists and sometimes doesn't. And the problem is, is the way the ADA is written, it says a place of public accommodation. And some courts have interpreted place very concretely and said, well, that means you have to have, actually have a physical space the brick and mortar that you referred to. And even though the Department of Justice has issued guidance and weighed in on cases saying that that's not required, um, they have not yet issued the regulations. And for those of you who've been around a while know that they did start to issue some regulations and then withdrew them. And now they're talking about doing some regulations for Title II, which covers state and local governments, but not yet Title III, which covers private businesses or public accommodations. And so we are in a bit of a state of uncertainty, I think, and especially depending on what part of the country you live on. And now one of the things that people say, well, you know, when there's a split in the circuits like this, that's something that's right for the Supreme Court to take and resolve the conflict. Um, But I would say that's not necessarily what we want to happen because we have a very conservative court right now that I think might side with businesses and take, you know, the the concrete approach to – to the public place of public accommodation. So hopefully, you know, in my perspective as a disability advocate, this is something that can be resolved by the Department of Justice rather than by the Supreme Court because I'm not sure we would get a favorable decision from the Supreme Court. So, um, you know, I, I think the, hopefully the actual Title II regulations will be coming out soon and people can weigh in on that. And then hopefully after that, we'll see some regulations on Title III. But until then... You know, people can go on to Department of Justice's website. There's still a lot of really 
positive information. They actually put out some guidance, I think it was in 2021, that you can find on their website, ada.gov, that um, sets forth the Department of Justice's policy and interpretation, even though they're not regulations yet. And, and you might be able to use that as an effective advocacy tool uh, until the time we do have regulations. hope that was helpful. Very, very good. Okay, well, let's move back to public accommodations. I just talked about movie theaters, and now I'm going to move to live theaters. So a lot of times people go to plays and musicals, and if you're blind, um, you, you have a hard time accessing those because there's not audio description. And so um, Chicago is a very um, vibrant live theater town, and so there are a lot of big theater companies, and a lot of people who are blind, um, as well as people who are deaf, were not able to access it because they were not making their services accessible. And so we worked collaboratively with both the blind and deaf community to approach some of the major theaters in Chicago about what to do uh, to make their their uh, performances accessible. We talked about, you know, the business model and, you know, you want to make your services accessible because there are a lot of people with disabilities who want to access your services. Um, and ultimately, uh, we didn't do any litigation here. This was all just really through negotiations. And a couple of big theaters agreed to do it, and then it was sort of like a domino effect where, oh, well, if they're doing it, maybe we should do it too. And so now many of our major theaters in Chicago um, have uh, adopted some accessibility policies and providing accessible performances, including providing audio description at selected performances. Another thing that some of the theaters have done, which I've, I've heard from the blind community is really great, is called a touch tour. And if you're not familiar with that, what happens is um, they open the, the, the uh, doors early for people who are blind and they can come into the, the theater and the actors will come out on stage and they'll, you'll be able to associate their voice with their character. And then they'll also allow you to go up on the stage and uh, basically you know, touch the, the set and get a sense of what the set is like. And so that way when you're, um, when you're at the actual performance, you have a sense of both the actors and who they are and what characters they're playing, and then you have a sense of the set as well. So the audio description gives you some information, but you've had this touch tour, and that gives you even a more complete understanding of, uh, of the set and of the play itself. So that's been really exciting to, um, to be working collaboratively with the disability community. Um, and one of the things that um, has been really great to see is that um, – the, the, the disability community has come, across, come, come, come together to do what they call a, a cultural access collaboration. And what they, they did initially was, this was the 25th anniversary of the ADA, so back in um, 2015, they said, okay, it's the 25th anniversary, we're going to do a project where we're going to approach 25 cultural institutions and work on making them accessible. So in honor of the 25th anniversary, we're going to work with 25 different cultural institutions. And it wasn't just live theater. It was also opera companies and museums and um, um, different things like that. I think a, a one of the botanical gardens. And so uh, that was really great to see that really collaborative process to get all these changes. And then they also put together uh, a calendar where accessible information would be available. And then they worked with the mainstream uh, theater group in Chicago called the Chicago League of Theaters, and they also have a calendar, and it has a calendar of all the accessible events. So if, for instance, Steppenwolf Theater Company, which is a major th theater in Chicago, is having 
you know, uh, audio description and touch tour on the 25th of July, that would be on the, on the, um, on the, uh, Chicago theater, uh, legal theaters website. I just went up to that website today just to check and make sure that's still happening. And, and it's, it's very full of accessible performances. And again, it's audio description, it's touch tours. There's also open captioning for deaf people. Um, and then sign language interpreted performances as well. So really exciting to see, um, the, the cultural community in Chicago embrace this and this cultural access collaborative uh, recently went statewide. So it's also addressing cultural events and companies and organizations uh, around Illinois, not just in Chicago. Um, but, you know, those of you in other states who want to replicate this might want to check out the Chicago, uh, the cultural access collaborative um, to get a sense of what they've been doing um, and maybe try to replicate it into your area. Okay, um, moving on, public accommodations. Um, one of the really common things we get is service animal access. And what seems to happen the most is access to retail establishments and access to restaurants. And, um, you know, I, I don't have to tell you about how common this is, but just tons and tons of, of people, including blind people, getting denied access to these private businesses uh, because they have a service animal. And people thinking, okay, we have a no pets policy, and they don't understand, you know, service animals, and deny people access. And so we mainly handle these on on an individual basis, but try to get systemic solutions. And we often start with negotiations, and sometimes resolve it that way. But as you as you can imagine, that doesn't always work. And so we have to be prepared to file an administrative hearing or file in court if the negotiations fail. And so when we negotiate these or work out a settlement in a court case, we first of all want to make sure that our clients get access to service with their service animal and get that written into the agreement. Uh, we also try to negotiate compensation when appropriate. But then we also want to try to secure agreement to adopt some kind of service animal policy. So this will go on uh, for other people as well. And if possible, provide staff training have stickers in the in the window or signage that indicate service animals are welcome, that kind of thing. And I think the training is really important for people to understand the difference between uh, a pet and a service animal and what you can and cannot ask, all those kinds of issues. Um, so that's been something that comes up quite a bit. Uh, another public accommodation recent success that we had uh, that I thought was pretty interesting uh, involved a, a blind person who was trying to access his gym. And he's somebody who wanted to access this gym and had uh, previous worked at a, uh, worked with another gym and had no problems. But when he went to this gym, they refused access to him without having a companion. And they said it was for safety concerns that he had to have a companion. And he said, I don't need a companion. I've been able to access my other gym independently, and that's the way I want to do it. And they said, you either have to have a companion or you have to hire um, a trainer at your own cost. And obviously that was not acceptable. So he approached us and we um, sent a demand letter, worked collaboratively with him and uh, got into negotiations and ultimately were able to reach a, a positive agreement with them without having to file a, a lawsuit. Um, and as a result, they agreed to provide him membership without the companion requirement or the, the trainer requirement. They also agreed to adopt a comprehensive disability accommodation policy, which our client was helpful in helping us craft, um, and then some training of their um, staff, as well as some financial compensation to our client. And uh, uh, I understand from the client that, 
now that they worked this out, things are working very smoothly, and the staff are treating him very well when he goes to the gym. So that was a really positive uh, success for him, but also some systemic change because we did get the policy and the training as well. All right, so we've been talking a lot about Title III public accommodations, but of course, as we referenced before, there's Title II, which covers government services. And of course, people with disabilities uh, rely a lot on government services. Um, and uh, if those aren't accessible, that can really be very problematic. And so um, we had some really interesting um, uh, negotiations with the state of Illinois about their digital accessibility. We just got tons and tons of complaints this is pre-COVID and then during COVID on the inaccessibility of the state of Illinois' electronics um, information. And we got complaints both from state employees, but also people with disabilities who are trying to access state services. And so um, including like their virtual meeting platform, which became obviously very important during COVID, uh, and websites and different forms, that kind of thing. And so, um, we work collaboratively with some blind folks and blind organizations and wrote a, a letter to the state of Illinois' general counsel and the governor's office, who's somebody I've worked with in the past, and said, look, you have some real problems here. You have some real vulnerability, some liability, and while we're willing to file a lawsuit if we have to, we'd rather work collaboratively and try to see if we can work this out. And to the state of Illinois' credit, they said, yeah, let's, let's figure out a way to work this out. We want to make sure our government services are accessible um, to, our, um, our, to people who are blind, um, accessing those services as well as our uh, blind employees. And it's been really great. It's, it's um, a process that's still ongoing. We meet quarterly with the state. But so far, they've done a variety of things that are really positive, like improving access to their virtual meeting platform, so um, State of Illinois uh, had purchased WebEx as their meeting platform. And I don't know if any of you in, uh, in the audience have used WebEx, but unlike Zoom, which is you know, pretty accessible, uh, WebEx had a lot of flaws uh, when, when it came to accessibility um, for a variety of folks. And so that's been something we've been working not only with State, but also Cisco, which is the um, manufacturer of WebEx, and working to improve a variety of problems that they had identified. They also have um, been working collaboratively with us on addressing a variety of website access issues. You know, there's so many different state agencies with their own website and putting information up that was inaccessible. And they're now doing comprehensive training and testing uh, and uh, making sure that what's up there is accessible and then when things are posted that they're accessible as well. Um, we also learned during COVID that the unemployment benefits um, website for the state of Illinois, which a lot of people um, were accessing during COVID because of loss of jobs, that there were accessibility problems with that. And so that's an ongoing process to make that more accessible. Um, we also heard that employment forms, when people applied for different jobs, that those forms were inaccessible, which is obviously makes it difficult to apply for a job if the form itself is inaccessible. So we've worked to address the form accessibility going forward. And then they've also agreed to create a new office to monitor accessible technology across all the different state agencies. And so, again, just like in the University of Illinois Chicago case, we've got, you know, a new uh, group of folks who are actually focused on these issues uh, as their, as their um, exclusive focus to ensure that um, information technology is accessible. And that goes to both existing technology as well as procurement of new technology. 
Another government service that we've been working on um, is access to the courts. And one specific example that I wanted to share with you is that, you know, around the country, uh, people are filing in court um, their documents electronically. Um, before, you would have to go down to the courthouse and file them in person. Of course, that's all changed. But the problem is, is that courts, as courts have been adopting this new uh, online technology for filing court, uh, documents, um, many of them have not used accessible technology. And so this, the Cook County, Illinois uh, court system, which is the, the county that covers Chicago, uh, rolled out this new electronic filing system, but unfortunately um, it wasn't accessible. We happen to have an attorney on our staff who's blind, and he went in and tested it and was going to file something himself, and he said, it's not accessible, I can't file this. So it was a problem for both blind attorneys as well as um, blind pro se people without attorneys who are needed to file in court and or file court documents. And so we approached the entity that oversees this court system um, uh, filing system and said, "Look, you've you've just built a whole system and it's not accessible." And they were shocked and really upset that their vendor had not done this and, you know, were very, I think, shamed that they didn't think about this. And uh, after they had worked, you know, all these this time to put together a whole electronic system, it turned out not to be accessible. And so, again, because we had a blind person on staff, we worked collaboratively with the entity to say, look, you need to fix this and fix it fast so that um, people can, can access your court system um, both litigants as well as attorneys, and they agreed to do that. And uh, so this was, again, a demand letter that resulted in collaboration as opposed to a lawsuit. And, again, we gave input as well as other blind people on what they needed to do, worked directly with the manufacturer, and retro they worked to retrofit their existing system to make it accessible. Um, that took a while, unfortunately, so we also worked with them on a workaround system. So if a blind person needed to do this, they there was a, a, a service that they could utilize uh, that would assist them on filing the documents so that they um, could uh, get the documents on file until the new system was accessible. Uh, and that's been accessible, I think, since 2020 now. So it's been enforced for the next past two, two or three years, um, but was a real concern at the time. Um, another uh, major case we did on behalf of blind people was um, access to insurance information and benefits. So um, at the time, um, the website for federal employee insurance was not accessible. Uh, so federal employees um, uh, work through the federal agency, the Office for Personnel Management, and the Office of Personnel Management was contracting with Blue Cross Blue Shield and some other uh, insurance companies to um, to uh, to, to provide this uh, insurance information for federal employees. And this was federal employees and their families and also former federal employees who still had the insurance through their pension and their family. So it was a really large group of people who couldn't access this information independently because the, um, the website for federal employee insurance was not accessible. So we actually worked with a private firm, uh, Brown, Goldstein, and Levy, and a blind group uh, to bring this lawsuit against the Office of Personal 
professional, excuse me, Office of Personnel Management, as well as Blue Cross Blue Shield. So it was both um, against a federal entity under the Rehab Act and also against a private company um, uh, under Title III. And we filed in Illinois because um, that's uh, we have the good law in Illinois with respect to website accessibility that doesn't require a place, like I was talking to Charles about before. And so this was a national case, but we happened to be in a good location to bring that case. So it was a national, uh, a firm that does national law law cases all uh, all the time, as well as working with us. So it was a really great collaboration. And. Um, after we filed the lawsuit, we were actually able to um, negotiate a consent decree. First, we negotiated the decree with um, the Office of Personnel Management, the federal agency, um, and they have made their website, which is opm.gov, accessible for their federal employees and former federal employees and family members. Um, but the exciting part was that, um, you know, because they were contracting with Blue Cross Blue Shield, what the Office of Personnel Management said is that as part of their settlement is not only making their own website accessible, but they agreed to notify all their providers of federal employee health benefits that their own websites and mobile apps must be accessible or they would face uh, adverse consequences to their contracts. So basically hitting those private insurance companies where their pocketbook is and said, look, if you want to contract with the federal government, you've got to make your websites accessible. We're not just us, but you have to as well. And so that was a really, again, huge systemic change and uh, benefit for um, so many people who were either current employees, family members of employees, or former uh, employees, uh, some, you know, who within that group, a lot of blind people. Uh, who now are able to access their employee insurance information privately and independently. Um, another government service that we get a lot of complaints about is prisons. Uh, and there's many individuals who are incarcerated who are blind and experience all kinds of barriers or exclusions while they're incarcerated. And in, in many of these cases, again, we start with negotiations, but if we can't negotiate it, we file administrative complaints or uh, complaints in court if the negotiations fail. And in these cases, we've ensured that prisoner information is provided in alternate formats. Um, we've made sure they had access to assistive technology. Sometimes people have had their canes taken away. We've been worked on getting that back. Um, you know, uh, make sure that information is, uh, that is provided to people is uh, accessible. Communication, so if they're just posting information, they have to figure out other ways to communicate to blind people this information. Um, We've made sure that people are able to participate in different prison programs, including getting their GED and vocational programs. And those are really important. A lot of these programs are programs that can impact the length of, length of sentence or their ability to reenter society. And so we've done a lot of different individual cases that um, have really helped uh, people who are incarcerated uh, both have positive experiences while in prison or or at least more positive experiences while in prison. It's still, I'm sure, a very negative experience being in prison, but at least an accessible experience in prison, and then also benefit them when they reenter society. Uh, next, I want to turn to housing. Um, so we get a, a lot of calls from people who are having problems accessing housing because of disability issues, including um, uh, calls from people who are blind. I uh, just want to give one example. We had a, a blind woman who said she couldn't access the written announcements in her condo building 
So they would post things, you know, on the bulletin board and she wouldn't even know it. And then she wouldn't know, you know, what was going on in the condo or if there were things she was supposed to do or meetings and things like that. And she complained and they just wouldn't do it and uh, provide it to her in an alternate way. They said, well, just have somebody read it to you or something like that. And she's like, I don't want people to read it to me. I want to get it directly. And so we got involved and were able to negotiate uh, something successful after demand letter where they agreed to adopt a reasonable accommodation policy. Um, they provided, agreed to provide notices to our client via email so that she wasn't relying on other people or um, when they posted these information on the bulletin board. And there was also a sort of another issue that she had encountered as far as uh, the washing machine. There had been an accessible washing machine and then they replaced it and the washing machine they replaced it with was not accessible. And they ended up putting Braille on that washing machine to make it accessible. So um, a variety of things that we were able to work on with her. And then again, because they adopted a policy, that'll be something that's available for other blind people who are in that condo in the future. Um, and of course, over the years, we've handled numerous uh, housing cases on behalf of the blind community. Um, most of them involve um, blind people with service animals who aren't able to um, rent or or convince a condo association that their service animal is something that's allowed by law and it's not a pet and getting them to modify uh, no pet policies and that kind of thing uh, to make sure that service animals are available. And then there have also been some alternate uh, format issues and effective communication issues as well that we've worked on um, with blind folks in housing. All right, the last issue I was going to bring up, and then uh, we still have some time for questions, is the issue of employment. Um, and I'll give one example, but we've handled a number of employment cases over the years. But this is a pretty egregious example, and it actually involves somebody who is leaving prison, and he is all set up um, to get to work with a vocational rehabilitation provider in the community. But unfortunately, that particular provider um, said, we can't serve people who are blind. Um, we're not set up for that. It's not safe. Um, so sorry, we're not going to. We're not going to serve you, even though they had worked to, to identify this provider, and that was part of this whole release program, his, you know, his reentry. And when they refused, he actually had to go back to prison and stayed in prison for several months. So the only reason he was in prison for those months was just because of an inaccessible community provider, not because of anything that he had done. So really a, a horrible um, deprivation of his liberty. And so we got involved. We actually couldn't negotiate this one. We actually had to file an administrative complaint. And then ultimately, um, we reached a settlement in that administrative complaint. And the provider agreed to create a non-discrimination policy as well as a reasonable accommodation policy. Um, and they also gave um, financial compensation to our client. So that was a really um, horrible situation for our client, but ultimately, you know, a really positive result. He ultimately didn't want to go back to that provider, which often happens in employment cases when you had such a, a negative experience, and that's why the financial compensation was important. But he's now uh, living in Minneapolis. He's a manager of Chipotle, doing great. So the fact that, you know, this vocational rehabilitation provider said that, you know, this person couldn't, couldn't work, it wasn't safe, is obviously not... Um, not accurate because he's doing great in the community um, working in Minneapolis. And of course, over the years, we've handled numerous individual employment cases. Um, sometimes um, it's a reasonable accommodation or effective communication issue, uh, acquisition of technology, uh, service animal. We've got a new case that we're going to be filing in the next week or so involving two people 
who were hired over the phone and then when they showed up the employer's like oh my gosh you're blind and they just sort of freaked out and said you know we can't really have blind people in the workplace and so they sort of ignored their obligation to address any reasonable accommodations that might have been helpful to allow these folks to work um so um that's a, that's an issue that i think is coming up more often when people are applying online and are deemed qualified and then they show up and then the disability issue becomes something that employers you know sort of freak out about and don't do a good job accommodating or addressing through the interactive process so that's another um you know major issue uh that um, we're working on with the blind community all right i think i've gone through all the different topics i was planning to uh, and was told to leave about 10 to 15 minutes for questions so uh, Dave, I'll turn it over to you to see if there's any questions in the audience. All right. Thanks, Barry. Two things before we take questions. Um, first, Barry, the count is 15. And Barry um, mentioned a PowerPoint presentation that um, accompanies his oral presentation today. If you would like a copy of that and you are not on Avia's uh, membership list, please see me before you leave. Give me your email address, and I'll be happy to give it to you. Um, so, again, if you want a copy, please see me before you leave. I'm up here at the table. I'll take your email address, and we'll get it to you. Um, Sean or Charles, do you have any questions? Okay. Um, my question is, have you ever had – well, I had this issue, and I wondered if anybody else, if you had and how you dealt with it. Sometimes they, uh, when you go to the doctor's office, they give you this, uh, like, your – legal rights and um right, HIPAA, HIPAA. The HIPAA, yes and it was really light i couldn't read and i said please darken this we can't yes you can you put it on the glass on the copier you push dark and you copy it we can't do that and she goes and then she went out of the room and i'm sure she didn't try she goes i can't do that then i'm not signing well then i can't see you say like, no you've got to accommodate me and i don't think I got that resolved for, at that particular time. They did see me, but... And the same thing with getting your information afterwards. Sometimes when they send you letters in the portal, it's very blurry. Has any of those ever issues come up, and how does that get resolved? Yeah, I, th I think you identified an issue that comes up all the time when people are asked to... Uh, asked to um, to sign forms and consent and, and then follow up care information and that sort of thing, whether it's through a form that they send you or maybe some sort of portal that they have. And um, as I said, we had, you know, two of these um, uh, hospital systems that we identified those issues. And so one of the things I think that's helpful is when you're setting up your appointment, there is a question about accessibility and alternate formats and that kind of thing that, Again, doesn't work perfectly, but at least hopefully gets them on notice that you're going to need to have information in maybe a different way, and maybe they can send the form to you ahead of time um, or provide it in some way that's accessible, and then also the post-care information also being provided accessibly. So, um, again, I think trying to sort of attack these things on an individual basis, you know, you may get them to do the this one particular person to do the right thing, but you need to, you know, try to figure out ways to address these on a systemic basis so that they have systems in place that, you know, proactively ask about these issues rather than putting all the onus on the person with disability to, to raise that and, and be put in that horrible situation of, well, we can't see you because 
our services are inaccessible. You know, it's not your fault, but it's it's a, the system not being set up. Uh, and I think trying to figure out ways to, you know, work with hospital systems or doctor's offices and things like that and providing as much information ahead of time of your needs and what you what would be necessary for accessibility for you, you know, uh, can make a world of difference. Okay. The nurse was going back and forth. It's like I had this disease and I didn't, but that's the way they were acting. That she, they wouldn't talk. The manager would not talk to me personally. And yeah, I I'm very sorry. That's that yeah. shouldn't happen for sure. Yeah. All right. Go ahead, Charles. Um, well, yesterday we had a presentation by a professor of law about the recent Supreme Court decisions. And there's one decision, I believe, and I'm not sure, but I believe it was in regard to the voting rights bill, voting rights in Alabama, in the uh, recent uh, uh, division of, of the, of, of the uh, congressional uh, districts. And he talked about how there was discussion of accommodation in that decision and seemed to think that that mention might have some application in employment issues for, for the disabled. Um, so, you know, I was wondering, do you have any comment on that? or? Might yeah, I have to say, I, I actually haven't read that decision or even read anybody. I, okay. I, I, so um, I'm, I'm, I'll take a look at it, and the fact that they, they put the word accommodation in that might be helpful, I agree, um, but would have to read it to really know for sure. But um, I appreciate knowing about it. Sorry I haven't read it yet. Yeah, Charles, I think that may have been the um, postal worker and the religious accommodation. Right. Yeah. Yes, uh, again, first, thank you for uh, uh, spending your time with us today. Um, my question is, uh, have you all had any cases uh, that involve uh, the paratransit company here uh, in Illinois or Chicago, Pace? Um, I had an experience. I'm from Virginia. I followed all of their protocols. Um, I got a visitor's pass. And this is probably more of a quality issue. Uh, I, I got a visitor's pass, um, and uh, I called the day before. I set up my transportation from the airport midway. I get there. Um, of course, they are two hours late. Oh, and not only that, but they never show up. Mm. And then when I call them, they tell me, <laughs> oh, well, gosh, I'm sorry. Um, we don't have any available drivers. So I said to her, well, so what does that mean? <laughs> does that mean that I'm, uh, you know, I'm visiting from out of town? Does that mean I'm just stranded here at the airport? I have no other means of transportation. I followed your protocols, and she said to me, oh, well, I don't know what to tell you. We just don't have any drivers available. Um, I asked to speak to a supervisor, and then they started playing the hang-up game on me. <laughs> Uh, well, let me put you on hold for a minute. Let me ch look into that. 10, 15 minutes later, all of a sudden, I hear the dial tone. Well, not the dial tone, but the little click. So I, I was curious because I, I find throughout the country some paratransit companies are better than others, and I know this is probably more of a, uh, in many instances, a quality issue, um, but have you had any cases with dealing with the paratransit company? Thank you. 
I had a hard time hearing all that, but what it sounded like is that uh, the person was having difficulty with paratransit um, uh, and it's showing up late and not getting um, a good result or response to his complaint. Um, so, yeah, paratransit's a huge issue. Um, it sounds like you were accessing PACE here in Chicago. And, um, you know, there are um, provisions under the ADA which state about, you know, the comparable service and how long they have to do that and the fact that, you know, it's two hours, obviously, it's not going to be uh, acceptable. There is windows. that, But um, Access Living uh, was doing uh, some work on this, and we were – working with them, but they were taking the lead. They were doing a time study, and they were accepting complaints from people with disabilities who were having problems with paratransit, both on pickup as well as, uh, you know, um, the initial pickup and then the pickup later when they were returning back. And um, they, I know they issued that information to PACE, and PACE had a response and said, here's what they were doing to work on it. Um, I'm not sure what the status of that um, effort is. You could call Charlie Petroff at access living. I know he was sort of taking the lead on that. Um, there is a, a PACE ADA advisory committee that meets. Um, they have both a suburban one and a Chicago one. Um, and I'm sure you can find that on their website. Um, there's also, um, you know, written complaints that can be done. You can call us and we can help, you know, help you navigate that system as well. But um, unfortunately, it's it's an issue that's that's all too common that comes up. And um, what what often happens is say, yeah, that was a problem for that particular case, but it's not a system-wide um, problem. And that's why Access Living was doing the time studies to try to show that it's not this sort of random thing that happens occasionally, but it's happening on a regular basis. And I know PACE did their own study, and they said their study um, showed that they were not as uh, out of compliance as people were claiming that they were. So, you know, I... That's about all I know at this point on, on those issues. Um, and again, like I said, because Access Living has hired a, a person to work on transit issues, um, they're taking a little bit more lead on paratransit issues than we are currently. All right, Barry, thank you very much for your presentation. We really appreciate it. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be with you today. All right.